0: All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode seven. Um, I am actually recording this in Zoom right now, and I'm about to go live on the Creative North Shore Facebook page because today is April 3rd, 2020. And right now we are all dealing with the COVID virus. Uh, So everyone is on lockdown here in Massachusetts. So I just wanted to record that for the moment. And so Creative North Shore has been helping artists by putting up resources and starting live streams and everything like that. So I'm going to be recording this live episode uh, for that through Zoom. So I am gonna be recording the audio. Hopefully I'll be able to isolate that, put it up on the website and everything like that. Um, But if I can't, then you'll definitely find this video on the website after this and I'll post that. Um, I'm about to go live in about four minutes. So just so you know, this will be a little bit less scripted and a little bit less uh, polished than my episodes usually are because it will be live. I've done my best to sort of outline everything for myself like I normally do before I record my episodes, but it is going to be a bit less polished. Uh, so it's going to be a little different than what you're used to hearing. Uh, but this episode I have actually dubbed Murder in Medfield, Tale of the Body Snatcher, Uh, and I'm going to be talking about the first murder that occurred in Medfield, Massachusetts in 1802. Hopefully I will get to the part about the body snatching, um, but I don't know if I'll actually be able to get there because I have a lot to talk about with this murder, and I found some really cool records, so uh, bear with me for a minute, everybody. I am about to go live right now. On Facebook, so here we go. Uh, I'm not screen sharing right now, but I will be screen sharing later on because there's going to be some things that I'm going to want to show people. So when you hear me talking about screen sharing or talking about a source, I will try to post that in the picture section on the website, like I normally do, so that you guys are able to see it. So when you hear that, just know that. Um, That will be available on the website, but you'll hear me talking about it in real time because this is a live podcast. So just wanted to sort of give you guys the rundown. Uh it's been a while out there, iTunes. It has been a while since I recorded an episode. I think the last one I recorded was October. Uh so it's it's been quite a while. And hopefully I'll have some more content. I did record an earlier episode about corpse medicine uh, for Creative North Shore. So I am going to try and actually pull that video and record it and make sure I can post that on iTunes for you as well, just because I put a lot of work into that. So hopefully that will be up there soon too. Uh, So I'm just going to hold, please, everyone. You'll hear me typing because I have to type a description. All right. All right. Here we go, episode 7, Murder in Medfield, Tale of the Body Snatchers, is about to go live. Here we go. So this is going to take a little bit because it has to actually load on the page. I'm also going to be pausing a lot during this, so just bear with me if you are listening to this on iTunes because um, it's going to take a little bit and I'm going to have to wait for some people to show up in the room and everything like that. Uh, So I just want to be sure that uh, that actually happens. So hopefully this will work. I did do this earlier, so it should get on here without a problem. And let's see here. Hopefully, I can get to the Creative North Shore page right now. Um, Taking a little bit more time than I expected, so I apologize, everyone. But let me give you a little bit of an update while I'm actually trying to get this up and running. And then if it gets into the delay on the Creative North Shore page, then fine. So yeah, I've been doing a lot of work lately. Um, I'm actually currently out of work at the moment at the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum because due to COVID, uh, my workplace as the workplaces of many, many, many other people are actually um, out of commission right now. So I've been lucky enough to be able to do this. Oh good, it's up there, perfect. And uh, oh, we got a lot of people watching. Great. So, hi, everybody. Uh, I am going to try and follow along with the comments. I'm actually trying to get that up on um, Facebook on my other computer right now so that I can follow along with your comments. I do like to talk to all of you. Um, so, hopefully, that will get up here and I'll be able to actually follow along. Um, but thanks for tuning in yet again. Um, and I'm really glad that you're all here. Uh, so, thanks for watching again. Um, so I've got a lot to talk about tonight and it's going to be a little wonky. So I'm sure that because there's a a delay, you've kind of heard me talking about, um, posting this online. I am hoping that I will be able to actually get this up onto my website, um, and at least record the audio so that, um, I'll be able to put this on iTunes. And I was just sort of warning all of my listeners before you guys got in this room, that it is going to be a little wonky and they're going to hear a lot of, uh, little weird things going on along the way. So, uh, thanks for joining. I'm going to wait for some more people to join the room. Um, so hang tight for my four people that are in here right now. And thanks for being here. Um, and I really hope that you stay for the whole thing. Cause this is going to be a doozy. Uh, I also definitely want to point out the fact that Because today is April 3rd, we have a very exciting thing that started today, and I'm sure Creative North Shore has been uh, posting that as well. And that is the Virtual Daughters of Darkness Festival. Uh, That actually started today, and they're going to be posting all sorts of content on their website and on their blog and on Instagram and Facebook. And they're going to have all sorts of people... Hi, Diana. Uh, They're going to have all sorts of people uh, doing guest contributions, including myself and uh, Diana, who I see has just joined, um, and some other awesome lady historians that I know. are going to be posting for the Daughters of Darkness blog, so keep an eye out for that content coming out. Uh, we all worked really hard on it, and um, hopefully when more people join, I can sort of get this rolling. And I figured since it was the virtual Daughters of Darkness weekend, I would actually wear some Daughters of Darkness uh, apparel, I guess you could say. Uh, So the outfit I'm wearing tonight is 100% Die With Your Boots On. That is one of the sponsors of the Daughters of Darkness Festival. And my little tiny necklace here, which hopefully you can see in detail a little bit, is from Laurie Moran at the Cemeterarium. So I'm pretty lucky to be able to know these ladies and be involved with them, um, as well as be involved with the Creative North Shore. So just a couple of shout outs before I kick this off and get things going. So obviously, shout out to John Andrews again For all he's doing, um, I know that he is just trying so hard to prove that artists matter and that we should be funding artists and that artists are an an essential part of the economy. And that's why he and Creative North Shore have been behind all of the artists that are joining this and joining these live streams because they are trying to create a further economy for artists and prove that uh, they matter. And you all here watching me are proving that right now. Um, so I wanna thank them. I wanna thank Carly from Intermersive and my whole team there for continuing to boost this while we are all trying to figure out this new normal. Uh, and I definitely wanna actually thank Sam Stair from Creative North Shore, because she's always on here uh, commenting and boosting this and sort of making sure that more people can see this content. So. Thanks. Big, big thanks to Sam, because I definitely see that you've been doing all these things and promoting all of us. So thank you. Um, All right. I think I've kind of prattled on long enough. I am waiting for more people to join Um, I'll give it a couple more minutes but in the meantime if you guys have any questions while we're going please uh, put them in the comment section. I can actually see that. Um, I do have that pulled up on my other computer so that I can focus entirely on you and Zoom and that you're able to see me but I can answer questions as we go along too. So if you have any questions um, please put them in the comment section and I will try my best to keep an eye on that and answer those as we go along. Uh, So without further ado Anyone watching right now, I know there's four of you there. Uh, Has anyone heard of the 1802 murder in Medfield? I kind of want to see if any of you have heard of it before I get going. So let's see. It's got a little bit of a delay, so I'll have to wait for you guys to actually answer that question. So here's me waiting. And hopefully more of you will join as we get going. I hope everybody's doing okay out there, too. Oh, there's six of you now, that's cool. Stick around guys, I swear I'll be getting started soon. I just wanna wait for a couple more people to join. Okay, well, I think we're gonna have to get going with the Mary Five Four that are in here right now, but hopefully more will join as we go along. Uh, so, welcome to the third installment of Life After Midnight Live. Uh, tonight, I am going to be discussing A murder in Medfield. It was actually the first murder to take place in 1802, and it resulted in a very strange outcome, which was the snatching of the body of an executed criminal. You heard me right. We're getting into body snatching. Oh, yeah. And I know Diana just said she has not heard of this murder, which Oh, boy! Buckle up because here we go! So before I get started, I do want to tell you guys a little bit of the history of Medfield um, because it is sort of important because the trial for this crime actually takes place in Dedham, but technically, the murder happens in Medfield, and the two are very closely related so uh, for those of you who don't know the Medfield uh, originally was Dedham, and Dedham originally included the territory that is now Medfield and Dedham was incorporated in 1636, and by 1640, Dedham men had started farming and pasturing animals along um, the plains of what is now Medfield. Um, The land was really good for farming because of the Native American custom of burning the fields each November and providing grazing for wild game. So that's the reason that it ended up being incorporated um, as Medfield in its own sort of separate area. Uh, in November of 1649, Dedham held a town meeting which approved the laying out of an area for a new town. And so this was accomplished in the early spring of 1650 and corresponds with the boundaries of the present town of Medfield the 13 original settlers of Medfield paid 50 pounds to the inhabitants of Dedham for the compensation of the land. Um, Ralph Wheelock, who is a graduate of Cambridge University and considered the founder of Medfield, proceeded with a man named Thomas Wright and a man named Robert Hinsdale to the new settlement, which was finally incorporated as the 43rd town in Massachusetts on June 2nd, 1651. Uh, So... It is a farming town for many, many years, and it sort of, you know, sort of gets its uptick. But it is a very rural town, although it is a very close knit town. In 1802, a man named William Allen was killed by his brother-in-law Ebenezer Mason. Ebenezer Mason is tried and convicted, and he is hanged on October 7th, uh, 1802. Oh, <laughs> and Diana's just telling me, raised on Agatha Christie in the Midsummer Murders. Yeah, you should have known better, Diana. Medfield is not a peaceful town, or at least it wasn't in 1802. Uh, so I looked into this murder because someone, uh, you should know her as a vendor as E.K. Sully. She does a lot of block-printed, really neat um, things involving grave iconography, like scarves and t-shirts and bags and things of that nature. She does her own woodcuts. Anyway... The reason I decided to do this tonight is because one day I sort of got into a conversation with her after buying one of her death's head scarves. And she said, oh, my God, you know, I love your podcast. I've been listening to the first few episodes. Have you heard of this crazy murder in Medfield? And so I said, no, I haven't. And uh, so I promised her a couple of years ago, actually, that I would look into it and I would do an episode on this, and um, being in quarantine, it all kind of remembered, I remembered all of this and decided to do this episode for all of you. Uh, because if I didn't know about it, I was pretty sure that all of you most likely didn't know about it. Um, so I actually was able to find the proceedings of the trial for Ebenezer Mason. Um, which, oddly enough, for anyone watching that uh may work at the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum or has previously worked at the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum, like Diana, um the trial was actually preceded over by none other than the honorable Robert Treat Payne. This is the same Robert Treat Payne that ended up at the uh The convention, uh, that that signed the Declaration of Independence, and that presided as the prosecuting attorney for the Crown during the Boston Massacre trial, uh, trying to prosecute both Thomas Paine and the soldiers involved in the Boston Massacre trial. So yes, the same Robert Treat Payne, the very same, presided over this trial for Ebenezer Mason that took place in Dedham. And the trial itself took place between August 1st and August 6th, 1802. And I actually was able to find, so this is the one time I won't do a screen share, um, but I will do a screen share for other documents. I was actually able to find the trial proceedings um, from the Dedham Library. Um, Someone had uploaded a PDF who had studied this murder, so I was actually able to get that PDF and read this all for you. So I am going to be looking down a lot, but I promise you, I'm still paying attention to all of you. I just want to be able to read this to you. So William P. Allen is killed by his brother-in-law in the field one day in Medfield. Ebenezer Mason is his brother-in-law. He's arrested for that murder. Um, During the trial, uh, it says in the court documents that at the Supreme Judicial Court at Dedham on the first Tuesday of August 1802, Ebenezer Mason was indicted for the willful and malicious murder of William Pitt Allen by striking him divers blows on the head and body with an iron shovel, giving him thereby several mortal bruises in his head and breast whereof he died. Um, On the indictment, Mason was arraigned and pleaded not guilty, and for trial put himself on God and his country. Benjamin Whitman and Thomas Williams Jr. Esquires were assigned by the court as his counsel. And so then it goes on to basically talk about who the jurors are and the, the duty of the jurors and everything like that. And then they open the trial by saying it is a solemn and important task to decide on the life of a fellow man And that some had doubted whether one man or one community of men could have a right to take the life of an individual of the human race. But then the Attorney General observes during these trial proceedings that however invaluable the life of a man might be, before it was forfeited to the laws of society, yet the single fact before the jury was whether the prisoner was guilty of the charge in the indictment, in all cases where one man in subjection to the laws destroys the life of a reasonable creature in the peace and under the protection of the government he is guilty of murder unless he can show that it was justifiable by being done under the authority of the law in performance of some lawful act or under such a state of mind as would exclude the idea of moral obligation so they're basically saying that it doesn't matter that this is, you know, a man that they are here to determine whether or not he should die for the murder of William Pitt Allen. Um, but that the fact that he is a murderer and that the destroying of a life is, is uh, horrible and it should be remanded as such. So during this trial, uh, if you're wondering exactly how this murder occurred wonder no more because uh what is really heart-wrenching about this trial is that Reuben Allen who is the son of the deceased man so this, the, the son of William Pitt Allen um testifies he actually takes the sanity testifies during this trial so I'm going to read some of the Q&A between Reuben where he s- witnessed the murder of his father at the hands of his uncle so The question by the Attorney General stated, inform the court what you know respecting the death of your father, and to which Ruben replies, on the morning of the 18th of May last, I went with the team to work in the field with my Uncle Mason, uh, just in the edge of Dover. My father did not come till we went home after a second load of manure. And then the Attorney General asks, "Does your uncle, the prisoner, live in the house with your father? And Reuben replies, he lives in the same house, but in the other part with my grandfather, who is his own father. My mother is his sister. Uh, the attorney general then asks him, what manner did your father go to the field? Reuben answers, when we have loaded the wagon, uncle went forward and took away the bars and my father drove the team. Attorney General then says, inform the court how the murder was committed. And Reuben replies, when we were in the field and had about half unloaded, my father told my uncle that he did not put the muck where it should be. What did the prisoner say in reply? Not anything. I was in the wagon, which then sallied, and my uncle caught hold of the round that holds the hindboard. My uncle immediately pushed him down with his hand, him referring to William Pitt Allen. What did your uncle do then? He struck him again several times did your father say anything? When the third blow was struck, he exclaimed, oh, so ow. Uh, How many blows were struck? I saw him strike six. I then jumped out of the wagon and ran into the wood. Um, And then the court asked, why did you run away? And Ruben said, I was afraid he would kill me also. I met Mr. Newell, who I told that my uncle had killed my father. Attorney General then asked, what did Mr. Newell do then? Reuben answers. He ran to the nearest neighbors, alarmed them, and immediately went back to my father. We found him not quite dead. The blood gushed from both ears and many parts of his head. How was he then lying? He was lying partly on his side, his face in the dirt. No. Was Mason there? No. When the people were carrying my father home, I saw my uncle standing in the back of the barn on a small hill. So Ruben is referring to the fact that after the murder, his uncle Mason simply stood there. So Ebenezer Mason stood there, watched them carry off the body, and sort of made no attempt to run away. Um, He was arrested. And then the jury, you know, there's several other witnesses in the trial. I won't go through that because it would take me literally all night to read this to you with the language and the heavy language that's in there from both the defense attorneys and the attorney general. Um, But anyway, the jury retired about eight o'clock in the evening uh, on the last day of the trial. They came back in the space of an hour around 9 o'clock, and they returned the verdict that the prisoner was guilty. So they found Ebenezer Mason guilty, and Honorable Judge Payne uh, pronounced the sentence of death on the prisoner. So after that, his execution date was due to be October seventh, eighteen 1802. And there. this is actually the strangest thing I've ever seen, but not uncommon for the time, especially in the 19th century. Um, there was a man who actually went and interviewed Ebenezer Mason in prison after the murder of William P. Allen. And he says, what will you tell what and all of the inducements you had to murder said Allen, your brother-in-law and Ebenezer Mason's reply is because he was an ugly man, uh, a bad man. And I could not live with him. Um, he had no business that was honorable in his life. <laughs> so basically Mason argues that it, he was right in killing William P. Allen because he was insufferable to live with. Um, so he clearly had no remorse for this crime. Uh, and he is hanged. Uh, he is hanged of that murder on October 7th, 1802. Um, but the story does not end there. Uh, afterwards they write in the history of Medfield that, and let me just check the year here was published in 1887 Um, When they're writing about this first murder in Medfield, sometime prior to November 1st, after Ebenezer Mason was hanged on October the 7th, uh, his body was stolen from the burial ground and a committee was appointed by the town to prosecute the body snatchers. So for several days, Ebenezer Mason's body goes missing. We don't know why. I will tell you why I think in a few minutes. Um, so Ebenezer's body goes missing. They finally do find it, and they reinter him, um, and they reported that Jonathan Sprague of Dedham and Zadok Howe of Franklin took the body, um, but the principal witness, Royal, a man named Royal Sales, does not come forward. He hides himself And therefore, they can't prosecute the body snatchers for stealing the body of this murderer. Now, um, there's really not much more I can answer as far as questions about that. Um, And it wasn't several days. I'm sorry. It was several hours that they came across. um, Oh, no. It was several days that they found... um, Several days that they found... Mason's body. Um, And when they did find it, it was actually decaying because it had been such a few days. Um, So they were released. And the horrified town fathers felt that they couldn't return Mason's body to Vine Lake Cemetery for fear that it would be stolen again. So they didn't reinter him right away. <laughs> um, they were afraid someone was going to try and steal the body again, um, and that actually is a problem at this time. Body stealing's a huge problem, even in Massachusetts. Those college boys don't bury somebody, especially if they're a murderer, because they're going to steal them and they're going to just they're going to dissect them. I'll get into that. Um, and sorry, I'm a little all over the place tonight because, in the good words of Beyonce, I've been drinking, so um, we're at cocktail hour, everyone. Um, So, basically, instead um, of reinterring Mason's body, the Medfield Selectmen, who were John Baxter, Charles Hammond, Moses Hartshorn, Johnson Mason, and William Clark, had the decaying corpse—you can't make this up, you can't—had the decaying corpse of Ebenezer Mason that they were afraid to reinter, dismembered and buried Mason in different spots around town— Mason's torso, which was believed to contain the soul, was buried at the intersection of South Street and Noon Hill Road. So for anyone that knows modern day Medfield, if you go to that intersection, that's apparently about where his torso is over there. Um, And this was meant to symbolize his soul being poised at the crossroads of heaven and hell because he was still a murderer. Um, His head was dispatched to the field off South Street next to Stop River. Arms, legs, and other body parts were buried elsewhere around town in undisclosed locations. So (laughs) if someone's body is stolen and you're afraid it's going to get stolen again, apparently the answer in 19th century Medfield is to just cut it up and bury it all over the place. (laughs) Um, So you're asking yourself now, I'm sure, well, why were they afraid that his body was going to be stolen again? Was it for vengeance? Was it for some weird fetish? Was it for magic? No, none of those things. You know what it was for? Science, as many things are that are gross. And I'm going to tell you why, science. And I only have about a half hour left on this stream. So buckle up, kids, because it's time to talk about elitism, the Revolutionary War, body snatching, and Harvard. So let's go. Uh, So in a quote from one of my favorite authors, I actually have his book right here. Uh, Michael Sappel, who wrote this lovely ditty, The Traffic of Dead Bodies. um, According to Michael Sappel, he says, from the late 18th century to the late 19th century, medical grave robbery was a common occurrence in America, and the fear of body snatching and consequent anatomical dissection was widespread in any area within reach of anatomists and their agents. Um, And this does go back quite a bit, um, especially in the late 18th century. Um, So just to give you an idea, there were medical students who were dissecting bodies because it was essential to their study of the human body. It was essential to their medical practice. So yes, they absolutely needed to do this. Um, And in fact, the first uh, dissection recorded in the American colonies um, that is recorded for medical purposes, not the first dissection i 'm sure it happened before, and i 'm sure people were experimenting long before this. but the first recorded one is in New York in seventeen fifty and it was performed by doctors John Bard and peter Middleton so this is the first recorded dissection um, and Actually, there are three different terms used later in the 19th century to refer to the illegal disinterment of human bodies, because for many years this was illegal um, in different ways. (laughs) Tammy does know at least one of them. Thanks for joining. Don't worry, we're going to get there, Tammy, I promise you. (laughs) Um, So the legal terms for the disinterment of human bodies were body snatching, as referred to by the commoners, as it says. And, uh, Diana's now messaged me saying (laughs) a trip to Medfields is in order. So yeah, of course my friend is going to come with me to find like burial places of dead body parts because my friends are awesome. But anyway, um, so body snatching, poor members of society, uh, the elitist elegant language was called resurrection. And some of these people that disinterred human bodies, especially people that were paid to do so by medical colleges in America were known as resurrectionists. So this is sort of the elitist term because it becomes this sort of elitist task for people to hire well-known or to hire people to find bodies for medical students who would then dig them up and take them back to use them for dissection practice. Um, And then of course the third term is good old-fashioned grave robbing. Uh, So Basically, let's talk a little bit first about the laws uh, for grave robbing, because there are some laws in place, um, but they're very, very shifty for a lot of the early part of our history. Um, So one legislator in New England in 1869, according to a man named Dr. Frederick Waite, who wrote basically the book on grave robbing in New England in particular. um, But basically... Uh, in 1869, a legislator in New England attended to supersede a general principle of the law um, by saying that if any person requests during his life that his body be delivered to a regular physician or surgeon for the advancements of anatomical science after his death, it may be used for that person unless some kindred or friend asks within three days that it be buried. Um, that comes much later in our history, however, so I'm going to bring it back a little bit because believe it or not, grave robbing is really complicated uh, in 17th and 18th century New England. So the only English law that was related to grave robbing throughout the period of the American colonies is in 1788. Um, So this was sort of applicable to the American colonies because by then we had just gained our independence. So even though we are our own nation, we're still sort of holding to a lot of the English laws and the English law um, structure at the time. Um, But in that law in England in 1788 determined that stealing dead bodies, though for the improvement of the science of anatomy, is an indictable offense as a misdemeanor. So England is the first person or first country to sort of set a law against this, one of the first. the first code of laws in the colonies in New England, for anyone that knows 17th century uh, New England history, was the Body of Liber- Liberties, which was adopted in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1641. Um, but uh, those statute of, or the Body of Liberties does not mention any penalty for the disinterment of human bodies. Uh, so the first laws that we see on grave robbing happen in New Hampshire in 1796 so this is the first one we see um, it's in New Hampshire in 1796. Vermont mentions it and enacts a law in 1804. Massachusetts and Maine which was a district of Massachusetts until 1820 uh, Massachusetts and Maine do not put any laws in place regarding the disinterment of bodies until 1815. So in 1802, when that murder happens in Medfield and Ebenezer Mason's body is disinterred, there's technically no law at the time. The first actual law put in place is 1815 um, in Massachusetts. So, again, it's that sort of very in-between law that allows a lot of these body snatchers for medical schools to go and disinter bodies because the law is very wibbly-wobbly. So instead of referring to wibbly wobbly Tommy a stuff, we are going to refer to wibbly-wobbly gravy-robby stuff um, is essentially what's going on. Um, There are some earlier laws in New England um, that prohibit the disinterment of human bodies. Um, Rhode Island in 1655 adopted that if any person shall be accused of robbing any grave, if the court be satisfied of the probation of it, the party or parties shall be fined or suffer corporal punishment or both. Um, and then, of course, there is also the Act of Conjuration um, in 1692. So even though Massachusetts doesn't have an official law on the books until 1815, there was the Act of Conjuration um, that was adopted after the witch trials in 1692, um, which is titled An Act Against Conjuration, Witchcraft, and Dealing with Evil and Wicked Spirits, um, and included the following. Be it enacted that if any person or persons shall take up any dead man, woman, or child out of his, her, or their grave... Or any other place where the dead body resteth, or the skin and bone, or any other part of the dead person, to be employed or used in any manner of witchcraft, sorcery, charm, or enchantment, he or she or they shall suffer death." So after 1692, because of the seriousness of the witch trials, Phipps puts that in place for a bit, um, and it was actually invalidated a few years later by the English court due to technical reasons, probably because England was pissed about the witch trials, as we all know. Um, So that was actually invalidated. So now that we know all of that early law, let's talk about some really well-known people that were known to be resurrectionists at Harvard Medical School. So uh, I found this really well-written article by Christopher Klein. And I am going to use his wording just because I love the way he describes the scene and sets the scene. Excuse me, room. So he describes it as this. On a moonlit night in 1796, Harvard University student John Collins Warren and a pack of shadowy figures snuck into Boston's north burying ground with tools in their hands and mischief on their minds. The trespassers crept over to the cemetery's freshest grave belonging to a recently deceased man who lacked any kin. Rather than paying their respects to the lonely soul, however, the young men instead unearthed the coffin and tore it open. They heaved the plump body out of its tomb, stuffed it into a bag, and hauled it to a waiting carriage that sprinted back to the campus. News of this nocturnal expedition traveled fast around Harvard. And when Warren arrived for class the next morning, he met the disapproving eyes of his professor, who also happened to be his father, Dr. John Warren fatherly concern quickly melted into pride, however, when the body was uncovered and he saw what a fine, healthy subject it was, he seemed to be as much pleased as I ever saw him, and that is as recalled by John Collins Warren upon his father discovering that he had disinterred a body to bring to the medical school. Um, The anatomy professor, so this is Dr. John Warren, who helped found Harvard Medical School in 1782, um, could admire his son's work, as Klein writes, because he had also been a body snatcher, or a resurrectionist, as we like to call them. Oh my gosh, it's Sandy. Hi, Sandy. Sorry, guys. I'm getting distracted by all you lovely people joining. So Dr. John Warren, who founded Harvard Medical School, was also one of these people who was going disinterring bodies and using them for anatomy and dissection in medical school. Um, So harvesting corpses was necessary. It was necessary for them to learn about anatomy, as I said before, and practice surgical techniques. So they often would practice their surgical techniques on these disinterred bodies. In colonial Massachusetts, as Klein writes, anatomy students were permitted to dissect executed criminals, um, but that yielded maybe one body a year because it was legal um, to actually dissect criminals. And according to the laws in Massachusetts, um, dissection could oftentimes be actually put on you as a punishment if you were due to be executed. So um, it was up to the power of the judge and his discretion Uh, when you would sentence a murderer to execution (laughs) excuse me you could add the further penalty of the body being delivered to a physician for dissection so they were actually using this to tell people you know you wouldn't be buried you wouldn't have that final resting your body's going to be taken um how do these keep these corpses cool? Oh, don't worry, we're going to get there. I have like the whole manual for grave robbing that I'm going to read to close out this episode, Diana, so don't you worry. Um, so again, because this was the manner of getting bodies, it was legal. It's few and far between. There weren't that many hangings, um, in New England for murder, especially in Massachusetts, um, and even rarer than that there weren't a whole lot of judges that were actually putting dissection as a verdict as well. So it's actually very hard to get that. So um, the response, universities would hire body snatchers, uh, known as resurrection men, as I said before. Um, But in some cases, students were forced to literally dig up their own classwork. Um, So around 1770, a group of Harvard students, um, including the Elder Warren, formed a secret anatomical society called the Spunker Club. Um, and it's, <laughs> as Klein writes, I love his language so I keep using it. Yeah, dissection as punishments, Jonathan. It's a thing. Um, but again, very rare, so we don't really know of any recorded cases of that actually being used, but it was on the books as a legal precedent. Um, so anyway, uh, As Klein writes, the Spunker Club is the most macabre extracurricular group in the university's nearly 400-year history. Um, The student group was not recognized by the university officially. um, And it was so clandestine that the members were forbidden from writing its name. So you were not allowed to refer to yourself as a member of the Spunker Club in any writings that were affiliated with Harvard University at all. Um, So it was a known and accepted thing among the elite members of Harvard Medical School, but you did not talk about it. Um, Very, very important. Um, But the organization included the only surviving son of uh, Samuel Adams, who was a part of this, um, and the future Secretary of War, William Eustace. So these members studied, some of them studied medicine under Dr. Joseph Warren, who was one of the founders, perhaps the most important person in founding of the Sons of Liberty, um, who later died at the Battle of Bunker Hill. And so this this is the best part of all of this. So there was competition among who in Boston's elite would be able to find the best cadavers and find them quickly. So basically what that meant is there was a gentleman's agreement among people digging up these cadavers um, to find the best ones. So basically they would rotate cemeteries. So let's say the Harvard Spunker Club needs a new cadaver for their surgical class and they were going to go to the Old North Burying Ground and try and find that cadaver. So people from other medical schools would say, all right, well, guess what? We're not going to go to the old North Burying Ground on Wednesday. We'll go like two weeks from then. So there was this gentleman's agreement among people in medical colleges, not just in Boston and not just in Massachusetts, but in the United States and or the colonies in general. Um, and so this continues into the Revolutionary War. Um So even before <laughs> rule number one about Spunker Club, don't talk about Spunker Club, yes, very true, um, so, oh, oh my goodness, I love this art by Laura Ennis of the Warrens digging up a body that Tammy Eustace has just posted, so you guys should check that out, oh, The Dreamer, yeah, I do know that comic, that's a really great comic, and I love that it has the Warrens digging up a body, oh, that's amazing, um, so, anyway, back to the Revolutionary War, um, so, if they suffered from a dearth of corpses, um, that was nothing that a good war couldn't fix, as Klein writes. So during the war, bodies abundant, because there are dead soldiers, there are dead mercenaries, there are dead Hessians, and there are a whole lot of dead people that aren't claimed. Um, so during the war, one of the things that people are doing is stealing bodies for dissection and stealing cadavers for study. Um, so especially Hessian mercenaries and fallen British soldiers were used by patriots. Um, And even the bodies of patriot soldiers were targets too, so equal opportunity bodies uh, for everyone. And apparently from his headquarters down the road from Harvard, General George Washington reported in his general orders of September 1st, 1775, that the body of a soldier had been taken from his grave in an abomination crime. So even George Washington is writing about these resurrectionists. Um, so let's get into then, how, how do we get here? Uh, how do we get here and how do we get away from here? Uh, because this history goes on for many, many years into the 19th century. And even so, it increases in the 19th century, but it becomes just a little more complicated because obviously war is over, no war, no abundance of bodies. So now you're going to have to find bodies. Um, And oftentimes the bodies that are found, (laughs) headless Hessians. I know where you're going with this, Jonathan. I love Sleepy Hollow, but anyway, back to this. So what do you do when you don't have this abundance of bodies anymore to, to, to harvest for dissection and for medical practice? Uh, well, you start with the most marginalized people of society. So oftentimes people would go after pauper's graves. Uh, they would go after potter's fields. And um, Free Blacks were definitely aware of their vulnerability after death, so there was even a racial uh, divide with what bodies are being excavated. That's a nice term for it. I don't know why I use that term. Um, So bodies that are misinterred, um, well, yes, of course, we know because of eugenics and social Darwinism at the time, um, a lot of these anatomists and elitists had this uh, racist sort of ideology and study and how they were studying the anatomy of both blacks and whites at the time. So black bodies were actually more desirable and you could get paid more for the body of a free black person uh, because of the social Darwinism and the sort of weird eugenicism that was going on uh, amongst medical study at the time. Uh, So an African-American newspaper from the 1820s actually advises that people fill their graves with alternating layers of dirt and straw so that the mud and the straw would actually pack together and um, be harder to dig out. Uh, and And the quote says, the longest night will not afford sufficient time to empty the grave, though all the common implements of digging be used for that purpose. So Black newspapers at the time were actually giving pointers Um, On how people should bury their dead to prevent them being easily dug up Uh, So that is a a part of that as well Um, so How does one then dig up a body? What is the best way to do this? Uh, Well, let's get there. Shall we? So How to dig up a body? 101 ideal conditions for grave robbing. Well, there has been research done in that and so Dr. Frederick Waite uh, has laid that out for us, so without further ado, for the last twenty minutes, um, I would like to talk a little bit about all of the considerations that these people would take in, in, or things take, people would take into consideration when they were robbing a grave so for several reasons <clears throat> it 's actually said that um, medical co- uh, the procuring of bodies for use in medical colleges um, was wholly interrupted in June, July, and Ar- August, and largely so in May and September. Um, So the fall, yeah, the fall session and everything kind of got messed up for a while, but ideal sort of conditions for robbing a grave. So it was open as soon soon after burial as possible, often in the first night following a burial. Uh, The grass and ground about a grave had been trampled at the time of the funeral, um, and further trampling a few hours later would not be detected, so the sooner after the funeral the better because people would think that the trampling was just from the funeral that had happened. And you wouldn't be able to detect a disturbance in the grave, so as soon uh, after the burial and funeral as possible. If a rainstorm intervened between the burial and the disinterment, uh, the loose soil would be muddy, so that would be less easily handled, so it's not great to try and dig that up in the rain. Um, but it also could offer cover because rain's gonna wash away any footprints. So it could be ideal depending on what the person is trying to accomplish. Um, moreover, after the surface of the grave is beaten by a storm, um, it was impossible to make the part that was exic- uh, excavated in a disinterment appear like that which was not excavated. So that's another downside to disinterring a body in the rain. Um, that these people had to contend with was that you could not very easily make that grave look like it had not been disturbed. Um, grave robbing when the ground was covered with snow was barred except when more snow was falling to cover the tracks of men and vehicles because you need to be able to get a wagon in there. Um, and a grave near an inhabited dwelling was avoided because of the risk of discovery by inhabitants of the dwelling during the disinterment. So it was well known, and in some cases, um, temporary burial was made in the garden of the home of the deceased, or in one recorded case, immediately under the bedroom window. So people were catching on to these resurrectionists and therefore taking matters into their own hands and sometimes burying people on the property very near to the home. So there was less risk of grave robbing. Um, and then they would sometimes reinter them in a cemetery afterwards after the body had sufficiently decayed enough that it would no longer be useful to anatomists who were hoping to achieve a dissection. Um, and of course, as I said before, potter's fields were pretty favorable. Um, it's a place that's bought for public burial and uh, people who do not have the money for an interment are generally buried in potter's fields. So this is an ideal place. Uh, and it was said that a body buried in a potter's field near a medical college did not remain long in the grave. Uh, public authorities made no effort to investigate when a grave in Potter's field was disinterred. Um, and the story is actually recorded that in some cities, having more than one medical college, there was a gentleman's agreement among people maybe who used to be a student at the medical college that now were friends with the police, sort of tipping people off to when recent burials were so that they could go at a time that there would not be a patrol. (laughs) So this was a whole racket and lots of people made a lot of money off of it. And that's why I say that grave robbing was an elitist practice because some of these medical students and some of these medical professors had the money to pay off the authorities so that they could achieve this. So, of course, you achieve that knowledge of the burial. And the next was to sometimes send um, a letter in the mail uh, advised and advise an officer of a medical college of the place and the day of the burial. And so such a message was often sent in code and not sent directly to the officer, but to some intermediary, such as a druggist in the town of the location of the medical college who understood the importance of the message and then went to its destination. So they would even have this whole network of people that would deliver these messages in the 19th century on how to find these graves. The next step uh, was to locate the grave accurately in daylight hours. So you would have to have a grave stakeout during the day, um, which would involve uh, people sometimes reconnoitering as hunters. So they would describe them, uh, disguise themselves by holding a shotgun and sort of walking around near the graveyard like you were hunting for small game and you happen to be in the cemetery and see the funeral. So they would sort of, you know, go in there with a rifle, looking for some little squirrels, and then, you know, rubber neck at the funeral happening, rubber neck that open grave, mark it in your brain. And then at night, it's going to be easier to find that grave. Uh, so it said that you needed three men at least, um, and a conveyance to properly uh, complete a disinterment, I guess to say. Um, so one man has to stay with the wagon. Um, it's driven away to return at a specific time, um, if the cemetery is located on a public highway, because the conveyance standing in front of the cemetery at night would rouse suspicion. So you have to make sure that you're timing it correctly. So you kind of like, you know, go around the block until you were given a signal by the people disinterring the body that they were ready to, you know, hoof it onto the wagon and get the heck out of there. Um, so this, this was this whole operation that they had to consider. Um, So then, the entire surface of the grave was examined with a shaded lantern to make sure that you know um, you can arrange a a careful pattern of shoes um, and things like that to make sure that they if anyone left anything there, because sometimes what people would do um, so that they would know if a grave was robbed is they would leave little flowers in strategic places or leave like shoes or decorations in strategic places so that if they were disturbed the next day when the family visited, they would know that somebody had attempted to rob the grave. Um, So you'd wanna check for that. um, And then you'd actually you know, imitate that when you put the grave back together. Um, So again, this whole operation, and two, two large tarpaulins were a necessary part of equipment. So one was spread beside the grave, and all the excavated soil was thrown on that tarpaulin, so that when the soil was returned to the grave, there would be no telltale bits of uh, bits left on the grass. And then each uh, cemetery burial had the head in a certain direction. The position of the head on the grave could be determined by the neighboring tombstones, so they would know exactly where to dig. Um, Excavation approximately three feet square was made at the head of the grave until the rough box was reached And then the depth of the excavation was four feet or less so that not over 35 cubic feet of soil needed to be handled Um, This guy really did a lot of research into this and it's starting to make me a bit suspicious Um, I wonder where he found this information Um, The next step was to withdraw the body so you would get down to the coffin Um, You would muffle uh, the coffins that didn't make too much noise when you're actually opening that, uh, the next step you take the body out, which was what was called the hook, um, which is a strong iron bar five feet in length. One end was turned up into a blunt hook of about two inches while the other had a crossbar handle. And so the hooked end was placed under the chin of the body and you just hook the head and pull it out of the coffin, or the casket, um, up the length side of the grave and out onto the other tarpaulin that was placed upwards at the head of the grave. Um, <laughs> so draw it onto that tarpaulin, and then the hook like seriously injured the structures of the floor and roof of the mouth. Um, so as an alternative, there was a harness strapped under the arms if he didn't want to use the hook. Who wrote this source? Uh, This was Dr. Frederick C. Waite, who is a professor emeritus of embryology and histology at the Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio, Um, and the article is titled Grave Robbing in New England. Um, So a lot of his sources, I think, are coming from the notebooks of anatomists that he was able to find um, in college record. I'm so glad you're taking notes, Tim. <laughs> um, so apparently, um, if the hook was undesirable, you could use a harness under the arms. Um, and a lot of this too, even though I'm sure a lot of it's taken from the notebooks of anatomists, I mean, a lot of it is common sense probably for a lot of physicians who have completed dissections and things of that nature. But a lot of it is coming from the notebooks of anatomists and records that they found. Um, So, again, after you draw that body onto the tarpaulin, um, the shroud or the other apparel was usually stripped off and thrown back into the grave. Um, and you would have to completely dispose of the clothing because if it found, if it was found, it made identification positive. So you want to make sure you don't have any of the clothes. Um, And then the body wrapped, excavated soil was returned to the grave, the surface was carefully restored to the exact condition which had been found, as I said before. All the tools were counted and wrapped in the tarpaulin upon which the soil had been thrown and the tarpaulin was tied so that no tools could drop out. Um, The lantern was used and it was essential that it be fully shaded. and so the type known as a dark lantern was employed. So then two able-bodied men, in, men would take um, the body to a wagon and then you were off. Uh, so you had your body. So again, all of those things that you need to take into consideration to actually complete this. Um, and so because of the supply of medical colleges sort of dropping off, this became sort of the norm. So then when do we get to um, how this stops? Because people start, you know, obviously being extremely worried, and there's a moral sort of um, protest against this, even though it is necessary for medical practice. But because of what I discussed before, right, there are no laws in place to donate your body to medical science. So because there are no laws, people aren't doing this, coupled with the fact. And you'll hear me sort of use this terminology a lot whenever you listen to my podcast, especially if I'm discussing the Victorians. Um, the Victorians were obsessed with this idea of the good death. So you're obsessed with, right, that lying in period in the home, um, a proper send off by your friends, your family and your neighbors. And then, of course, you're also um, concerned with actually having that church ceremony and that interment as a part of the way to have yourself resurrected into the afterlife. So of course, grave robbing and body stealing is going to be very, very, um, you know, uh, frowned upon by people of that age, especially in New England, especially in like the Brahmin societies in New England at this time. My God, you're talking about grave robbing. And, and it's funny too, because I'm sure that there are, you know, many of those Brahmins that were saying it was a moral, horrible thing, but at the same time, you know they had an uncle or a cousin that was an anatomist, and they were very, very proud of them. So I see you, New England. Um, But yeah, I suppose, too, if you were buried alive, that hook probably would have done them in. That's a good point. Um, Made by Diana there. Uh, So how do we get to the point where we stop this, then? Because people are extremely, extremely angry about this. Well, in 1815, Massachusetts, because of all of the outcry over the past 20 years or so of this growth of disinterment and grave robbing and resurrectionism, passes the act to protect the sepulchers of the dead. <laughs> that's a real Massachusetts act that's on the books, and this is why I love Massachusetts. <laughs> um, and yes, John Colin Warren was probably Collins Warren was probably very Brahmin. Um, thanks for that. Um, so, 1815. Massachusetts passes this act to protect the sepulchres of the dead, which made it a felony to dis- disturb a grave or obtain a corpse taken from a burial plot. So it makes it a felony charge in 1815. Um, so, of course, this causes an uproar in medical colleges in Massachusetts. So they start actually taking their bodies from New York. So people in New York, especially in potter's fields, because there are a lot of potter's fields in New York, there's a lot of unclaimed bodies. Um, People are going to Massachusetts medical colleges and trying to get them to pay them to transport bodies from New York. Um, But so let's talk about Well, for lack of a better way of putting it, let's talk about decay, because how many days is it going to take to get that body from New York with no cooling? Because, you know, if you're taking it right from the grave in Massachusetts very soon after, um, you can put it in a cool basement or a cooling area, and it's going to be used probably like the day after you dig that body up. But if you are getting it from New York, you then have to transport that all the way to Massachusetts obviously you're going to have decay happening. So this is less than ideal for those anatomists. So in 1829, the Massachusetts Medical Society publishes a public plea to change the state's statutes. And they argued that medical practice and study required medical students to pursue their training in defiance of the law of the land. So they're basically saying, you forced us to illegally get our bodies from New York because of your stupid act. And now we can't help you if you need surgery, and we haven't been able to study our bodies. So the Medical Society of Massachusetts literally gaslights the legislator into changing the law. And so two years later, um, after that public outcry in 1829, uh, Massachusetts passes the Anatomy Act of 1831, which allows the unclaimed bodies of the imprisoned, the insane, and the poor to be legally obtained for study. So that's a whole other bag of cats that we now get into because now Massachusetts is literally deciding whose bodies are more acceptable to give to anatomists. And this does include the poor, the insane, um, the unclaimed, um, people in society that are given uh, to these medical colleges um, and because of this in 1831 the Massachusetts legislature also now passes a law allowing people to donate their bodies legally to dissection so this all comes full circle people now can choose to donate their bodies to science before they die uh, with the understanding that the medical college will collect them and on and on we go in Massachusetts. And of course, I could keep going with this. I mean, because there's just so much history with this. If you think that it was that crazy in Massachusetts, you should see the history of disinterment in England, Scotland, and Ireland, because it is just an absolute trash fire. Um, So a lot of these ideas about this are coming from England and a lot of the ideas about how to change the laws are coming from these horrific uh, sort of stories coming out of England about disinterment. So when that does start to happen in the colonies and people start to notice it, they're going, oh no, 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 no. We're not going to do that here. Um, Not in New England, but they do. Um, They definitely do. So disinterment history, Starting today with the crazy murder in Medfield uh, of William Pitt uh, and uh, of William Pitt Allen, sorry, by his brother-in-law, Ebenezer Mason, and ending full circle with how do we go from a body stolen after a murder and execution to that just being the norm. Uh, Well, it was the norm before 1802. Um, So the fact that they tried to prosecute this in 1802 before that law was on the books for the disinterment of bodies um, is really fascinating. So I thought that was a bit of local history that I'd like to share with everyone. And um, of course, I can talk more about this another time. Um, I'd love to talk more about the Warrens. So I'm hoping to continue this episode somehow with... um, Diana or some of the other Warren scholars that I know in my circle um, because I love to do a whole episode just on the Warrens and um, the Spunker Club because, again, whole other bag of cats. Um, So thank you guys so much for for watching this. Um, One more thing I'd like to show you that I didn't get to screen share before um, is actually this poem that was written, an actual murder ballad that was written about Ebenezer Mason. So I'm gonna go ahead and share that with you guys now. So you can see this on my screen. Woo, this is why I wanted to use Zoom because this is super cool. Um, So I forgot to show you guys this earlier because I got way too excited about murder. Um, But this poem was written about Ebenezer Mason. So it reads, I'll read it with you in case it's too small for you on your screen. who is to be executed in Dedham on the seventh day of October 1802 for the murder of, oh no, did it cut me off? Oh no, there it goes. For the murder of W.P. Allen, his brother-in-law, which was committed the 18th of May last. Allen, farewell, for thee we mourn. How swift thy flight to worlds unknown. How tragic thy death. Who will forbid a pitying tear? And who for death will not prepare? Since thou dost sleep in dust." Mason, alas, we mourn for you, sentenced to die as murderers do, an awful spectacle. Soon you must leave your body here before the bar of God appear to answer for your guilt. How will you tremble to behold the face of God unreconciled by the rich blood of Christ? Repent and make your peace with him, and will, he will pardon your sin and take your soul to rest. How can a parent's heart sustain the pressing grief and heavy pain, which must upon it lie? I, a son-in-law, slain by a son, this son a lawful victim doomed, a murderer's death to die, the widowed sister next appears, and murderous brother from her tears, the partner of her life. Pity their sorrows, O our God, kindly remove thy chastening rod and mitigate their grief." let all to whom these tidings come a warning take from mason's doom and then the paths of vice temptation to temptation lead one vice on another vice succeeds the sin and guilt increase parents behold and sympathize you only can realize the pains that parents feel implore supporting grace for them and mercy for their dying son Thy grace may reach his soul Look to your children, let them know that God you fear, that God you love and teach them so to do. Let precept with example join to guide them in the paths divine that lead to joys above. If, thy, if they in sinful courses stray, be able to look back and say, conscience does not accuse. We mourn their fate. We weep, we pray. Yes, leave our all, O God, with Thee, waiting thy holy will. Children adore the Lord alone, his name, his day dare not profane, but love his holy laws. To parents, love and honor give that long and happy you may live and blessings may enjoy. Why is thy neighbor's covet not? What is thy neighbor's covet not? His name, his virtue, and estate strive to ever preserve his life, hold sacred as thy own. For with his, with thine, thy must atone if thou a murderer prove. Mason, for Allen, soon must die. Fairbanks for fails his life did pay. Ah, Dedham, late in thee, let all attend and warning take. All virtue love while vice they hate, that all may happy be. So this is a poem, a murder ballad, written uh, about Ebenezer Mason that I've ended this episode with today. And um, just so you're all aware, this poem is actually meant to be sang to the tune of Auld Lang Syne. So if you want to learn the murder ballad of Ebenezer Mason, um, just put that to the tune of Auld Lang Syne. And um, so I don't know who printed it. Um, I don't know who printed the poem. I tried so hard to look for who printed this poem and I could not find it anywhere. Um, So if you guys want to try and look for it, by all means, come and comment on this and find it, if you guys can track it down, because I could not find who wrote the poem. Um But if you want to learn a murder ballad, everyone, or teach the kids something scary and macabre, um, you can teach them about murder ballads. And actually, um, there is a website about uh, that has a lot of murder ballads, uh, including a murder ballad about the murder of Captain Joseph White, I should probably do that episode, too. Um, there's a ballad about the murder of Captain Joseph White that's actually published, too. And there's a really g- great website called The, uh, the Bloody Century um, that talks about all of these murder ballads. So if you're a weirdo like me, you can go look that up. Um, but again, thank you guys for tuning in again. And thanks to Creative North Shore for having me. Thanks to everyone who's stuck it out for this whole hour. Like, there's six of you who have been here this whole time. So thanks a lot. Um, and I will see you next week. I don't know what the topic will be. So any suggestions are definitely welcome. Um, but I will see you all next week. So until next time, farewell.